You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. There's a funny story where a teacher was teaching a third or fourth grade class about magnets. And for a whole week, she brought in magnets. She had the kids use magnets. They lost magnets. Some of them probably chewed and swallowed the magnets. I mean, she did everything she could to teach them about how magnets work. And on Friday of that week, she had a pop quiz. And she just wrote six dashes on the board and said, I just want to know if you can get this right. There's a six-letter word that starts with M. And the only hint is that it picks things up. And one of the kids said, mother. (laughs) I feel like Proverbs 31 fits perfectly into the magnet story. Before I absolutely destroy everybody's hopes and dreams about Proverbs 31 and probably everything you've ever learned about it, let me just say, from experience, from being in this church, from being a son in a home that had a very present mom, and from having the privilege to be with my wife for 13 years and married for eight. That's a long time. You didn't think you could do it. There's grace for everything. I scored. Someday I hope you realize that you married down. I hope you don't realize that, but I scored on that one. So, Women have a way of working so hard that it looks normal. I will say it again. Come on. (laughs) Women have a way of working so hard that it seems normal. I'm going to add to it. See, I was going to keep adding things. Women have a way of working so hard that it seems normal that when women are going through distress on the inside, it is almost impossible to tell. Men, we do not carry that trait. For when we are going through anything on the inside, it is instantaneously on the outside. And we turn into infants. My wife carried a human inside of her and did everything. I get a cold and shut down. Shut down for weeks. I'm like on the DL, two to four weeks minimum on the DL. This church is sustained and filled with fruit and joy and love because of the women that participate here. And I think they deserve a round of applause. That might be the last time y'all clap for the rest of the... I'm going to say all the next things that I have to say because I'm rescuing women from a text that has been used, whether with good intentions or bad, to belittle, to enslave, and to pretty much do this. You ready? We'll read Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day for you. We will tell, and when I say we, men will get up here and tell everybody else, you have to appreciate all the women. But then the pretty much typical Protestant evangelical church will tell you on Mother's Day or at a eulogy for a matriarchal person, We'll read this and we'll say we have to appreciate our women, we have to appreciate our mothers, and then for how long do they not even ordain a woman to be in the ministry? 
when this church inevitably closes for that comment, me and the eight people who clapped, we can start a church. I think we'll be good. We'll be good. Listen to this quote from Kenneth H. Carter, and I'm so glad this quote comes from a man, because if it came from a woman, it would be, you'd have to read it with a little bias, but listen to what this man has to say about what has happened because of Proverbs 31. He says, for many women who read this proverb, and just so you know, that quote pretty much looks like a daily to-do list for a woman in this church, so for many women who read this proverb, it seems like an overwhelming ideal, an impossible job description, almost a portrayal of the spiritual Martha Stewart. Make your own clothes. Get up in the middle of the night to get everyone else going. Take care of the family business. And watch this. Work into the night. So if you've got to get up in the middle of the night but also work into the night, this equals no sleep for you while we snore and keep you up for the one hour you do get to sleep. So many husbands just got blown up when everybody said amen to that. And oh yes, have something to give to those in need. Always be strong and dignified and have something profound to say but also laugh a little bit. And finally, do not take yourself so seriously. Your children will affirm you. Your husband will appreciate you. But make sure you do all of this with a reverence for God. So enjoy that, ladies. Apparently, the men are off the hook. This proverb is for everybody or it's for nobody. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, is for everybody or it's for nobody. Because it says the heart of her husband trusts in her. So really, if we take this literally, my wife is called to live a life that is so righteous that I trust in her, but I'm not called to live a life that's so righteous she trusts in me? She's got to get up in the middle of the night, but I can sleep because I'm the head of the home? She provides for the family. I get to play Xbox all day? It's for everybody or it's for nobody. So how does that work? Too many women have been exhausted, tired, and broke down because here's the reality. In this proverb is the proof that this woman does not exist. It starts with a virtuous wife. Who can find? Now, we have to point out who's writing the psalm. This is not Solomon. This is King Lemuel, and his mother told him about this woman. So for all your moms out there who don't ever want your kids to move out, some of the rabbis think this is what she's doing. She's saying, listen, listen, you can move out as soon as you find this chick. And he's like, sounds great. And she's like, sucker. Okay, no, 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 yeah, no, she's out there for you somewhere. It's like the Old Spice commercial. What have you done? It says who can find, and then in verse 29 it says everyone has tried, but you surpassed them all. Which means he has to find someone who has surpassed every other woman in history. Which means if you take that seriously, only one person on the face of the earth can even be this woman. Because only one of you can surpass them all. Jacqueline. So it's over. The game's over. Sorry to disappoint. Let's look at something very interesting here. We have to preach the gospel according to Proverbs. This is the last 21 verses of Proverbs. So we have to preach real fast the gospel according to Proverbs. We have to read this right. There are implications for men and women in this psalm that we can try and aspire to. But theology has to anchor our expectations of Scripture. If we don't have the right theology, our expectations are going to be idolistic. 
So we have to preach the gospel according to Proverbs first before we can talk about how this is meant to be used. So in the entire book of Proverbs, and really please read one a day every month. It's an amazing book. There's two women that show up in the book of Proverbs, and there's two men that show up in the book of Proverbs. Let's read about the first woman and the first man that show up in the book of Proverbs. So in the entire 31 chapters, there's two women and there's two men that keep showing up. Here's an example of the first man and the first woman that shows up in Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 7, verses 10 to 20. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Not the chick King Lemuel's mom wants him to bring home. She seizes him, so here's the first man, and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Has anybody ever met that person who pretends to be a Christian just because they want to get somebody else in bed? I'm going to say some stuff today. Just so you know, I'm probably going to preach over my time, and I'm going to say some things. So if you're not all vocal, I'm going to feel very, very good about myself because I will be fine standing up here in awkward silence because we are going to get real today. We are going to get real today. It has not even come close to beginning yet. We're going to talk about sex later on today. Where are we? So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. That's a long time. (laughs) kind of man is this, till morning? Sorry. (laughs) Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. If the person you're, you're thinking about being with is judging their spouse based on the moon, probably run away from the house. That's not a good situation to be in. But look at this first man is a man who's enticed by folly. So the first woman is the woman folly. And the first man is the man that's enticed by folly. So please understand There is not a characteristic of this woman that doesn't also work for men, and there's not a characteristic of this man that doesn't work for women. The Bible is using analogies, and when it uses an analogy, it has to choose something, but the something an analogy chooses, whenever you're working with a metaphor, it works for all different sides. That's why it's a metaphor. It's transcendent. So there are some women who are folly and try to entice the men, and some men who will listen. But I don't know if you've realized this. There are some men who entice some women because they're also foolish and some of the women buy in. So this is not about men and women. This is just about the metaphor of humanity. We all do both of these things to one extent or another. So the first woman is the woman folly. And the first man is the man that is enticed easily by folly. But now let's look at the next woman. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. 
she sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. So this is the woman wisdom. Her house is set. Her seven pillars. This house is completely solid. It is completely stabilized. She has set her table. She has other women who do what she says. She's organized, on point, inside the edges. She's filled with wisdom. So the first woman is the woman folly, and the first man is the man who is easily enticed by folly. We'll call him Adam. The second woman is the woman wisdom, and she's a little bit harder to find, which is why King Lemuel's mom has to say, a virtuous wife, who can find? You have to look a little bit for this kind of person. And the second man in the Bible is King Lemuel himself. Chapter 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Two women, two men. We have to preach the gospel according to Proverbs. The first woman is the woman folly, and the first man is the simple man, we'll call him Adam, who immediately buys into that folly and falls. Whenever foolishness and lust interact with each other, all you ever have is adultery. Then the second woman is the woman wisdom. And the second man is King Lemuel. So the first man immediately jumps at the very first opportunity he has. No matter that she's married, no matter that she's teasing him, no matter that, I love the phrase, wily of heart, no matter any of those things, he jumps at the first opportunity. But the second man, apparently, the book ends with him waiting. Proverbs ends with him waiting for this woman. So the first woman is deceitful and adulterous kind of like a prostitute. And the first man says yes right away. The second woman is impossibly perfect. Hear my words. She's impossibly perfect. And the king waits until he meets her. So where in God's name does this leave us? What kind of bride are we as a church? If The folly, adulterous, wayward bride easily attracts Adam. Read Genesis. Read the entire Bible. She wins all the way until Jesus shows up. But what do we do when the woman folly is pretty much all of us and the woman wisdom is something none of us can ever possibly attain to, but the only man we can attract is Adam? We preach the gospel. Because Jesus is the true and better King Lemuel, who doesn't wait for the perfect bride, but read the Gospels. He goes to the prostitutes. He goes to the wayward women. He walks into their house, and he's not enticed by them, but he heals them. When they're thrown down in front of him, he says, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. The woman who had seven demons cast out of her. Jesus is attracted to her. So here's the reality. Here's the gospel according to Proverbs. We are the woman folly, and we are being made whole, washed in the word, and being presented without spot or wrinkle by our husband, Jesus Christ. We are a church that is the Proverbs 31 woman in the making. In the making. The Proverbs, this is why when John the Baptist's disciples say to him, Are you disappointed that your disciples are going out to him? uh, John the Baptist says, look at him and look at them. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. But now the bridegroom has the bride. But here's the thing. It wasn't only women that were with Jesus. 
The bride is every man and woman that, and child that calls themselves the church. And the church is the woman folly. The church is the woman that was thrown down in front of Jesus. And religion is saying, look at her. She slept with everything. And Jesus says, fine. He is without sin, cast the first stone. Now that we got that taken care of, now it's just me and you, hon. And he picks up the woman folly. He does for her what Adam failed to do. And he's not enticed by her, but he heals her. So our job as the church is to become the Proverbs 31 church. She only exists when she unifies herself with Christ and the two become one and the divinity of Christ overflows the humanity of folly. This is how we have to think of ourselves as a church inside the edges. Becoming the Proverbs 31 church. We need to have a robust Christianity in the house. We, we need to be the kind of church, like I described about women earlier in this message. We need to become the kind of people that are deep enough to not only weather our own storms, but weather the storms of other people. When, when that microburst, when that tornado came through Fishkill and Beacon a few months ago in the summer, some of us went down into a basement because you try and go down into something when the structure you're in might fall. You always hear reports that some people didn't have a basement to go into. Whether it's a hurricane or a tornado or, or an earthquake, somebody didn't have a basement to go into. And here's the reality. The church needs to have a deep place in itself. It can't be shallow. It needs to have a deep place in itself that when, when winds and trials blow on your life, you have something deep in you that you can go down to that even if the structure falls, you're still okay and there's room for other people in that structure. We can't be superficial. Like I said last week, we can't buy into law of attraction this, name it and claim it that. The reason why Jesus bled and died is so that I can have money, so that I can have the right relationship. This is not, this is not the kind of Christianity that martyrs bled and died for. We need to be the kind of church that in itself is becoming the portal of heaven. Your home, because you're attached to the church, eucharistically, needs to become the kind of place that isn't so many things to say. Help me, Lord, right now. How many people want peace? Be honest. Peace. To ask for it is to confess that we live in a world that's always going to need it. When we pray for peace... What we're really saying is, God, get me out of the conditions that make me need it. The fact that Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace, is Jesus saying what he says in the very next verse, because in this world you will always have tribulation. When we pray for peace, what we're asking for are circumstances that don't need peace. But to truly need peace, you need to be in something that would make you not peaceful. We exist in the horrors of the battle between good and evil, between heaven and hell. That's where we exist. That's where we are, the church. We are the church in war. We are the church in famine. We are the church in pestilence. We are the church in sword. We are the church in racial discrimination. We're the church in gender discrimination. We're the church where women can't even say somebody did something to me because they'll be blackballed and the men will be promoted. That's where we're the church right now. 
we have to have a depth in us that gets out of the superficial crap that we all try to worship God for and get into a depth of Christianity that presses down into the person of Jesus Christ so deep that when your neighbor or your coworker who treats you like garbage is in Gethsemane, you're in Gethsemane with them. And when they say, let this cup pass, you say, nevertheless, you and I can walk through this one together. That's the kind of church that the world needs. Sorry, Dan, did I wipe my face the right way this time? He taught me how to wipe my face earlier. He is so annoying. I can't even stand him. So annoying. I get the fact that I even had to think about that just now. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If the church really was one person... Do you realize if you just turn on some Christian TV, listen to some Christian sermons, do you realize how in front of the mirror looking at ourselves we are? I'm just going to say that God's going to give me a house. I'm just going to say that God's going to give me a spouse. I'm just going to say that God's going to get me promoted. I'm believing for my healing. All this stuff. And the reality is some of, it, some of it has a time and a place. But when that is the essence of our faith, it gets blown away in the first wind of tribulation that shows up. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't last. How many altar calls for a breakthrough are we going to come to? The point is on this side, we're not going to break all the way through. But Jesus broke through into our mess, so we don't have to have a breakthrough to find him. He's on our side of the breakthrough. He's on the side of it before the through. Jesus is on this side of the breakthrough. To some extent, if I'm always pursuing breakthrough, I might leave him behind and not even know. Not even know. That's not the Proverbs 31 church. The way we love ourselves is the way we love other people. Jesus said it, not me. Love your neighbor as. So if we can't, if just individually, if we can't get out of the mirror, if we're obsessed with the way we look, if I can't feel good about me until I think I look good, then I won't be able to love you until I think you look good. We can't be this person. Can our values please get deeper? We need values that are basement deep. So when tornadoes of carnality and media and marketing and capitalism and lust come blowing on our house, we are in a deep place that doesn't get moved by it. We need to be down there. The Proverbs 31 church is a blessing to her husband, Christ. To her family, Christ. And to her city, Christ. This is the beauty of the Trinity. We need to talk about this for one blurb in this message. Two people could say, God sent his only son. And one person could say it with an impoverished view of the Trinity, and one person can say it with a robust version of the Trinity. See, when we say God sent his only son, because God is Trinity, we also at the same time need to say God sent his only self. So we have to talk about God in, in, in not just flat, benign ways, but we have to talk about him in a multidimensional way. So here's the reality. Jesus is the one we all just worshipped. Jesus is who I'm looking at right now, the body of Christ. And Jesus is every poor person, every abuser, every one of the least of these that's outside that door. So the Proverbs 31 church, the heart of her husband trusts in her. That's who we just worshipped. The family is blessed by her. We need to be blessing each other. And the city is blessed by her, and they're all Christ. 
when Jesus said to Judas, the poor you always have, but me you don't always have, there's a wink when he says that. Because first he said he'll never leave us or forsake us. But then he left us. He ascended, right? It's funny that Jesus brings up the poor to Judas because later on Jesus would say, when you've given a cup of cold water to the least of these, you've given it to me. So Jesus essentially says to Judas, the poor you're always going to have, but you won't always have me because you won't be able to see me in the poor. Because the poor is how I'm going to be present to you. The, the existence of the poor is how I never leave you or forsake you. This is what wakes a church up in the middle of the night to go out. This is why this Proverbs 31 woman doesn't sleep. Because it's not just about the midnight run to the city. It's about going out to see Jesus. When we're with people that we would confess are the least of these, we're with Jesus. So the person in our lives that we've talked about the most, gossiped about the most, made the worst, that's Jesus to us. If I'm right about you being the least of these, which I love to be right about that, then Jesus steps into that person and says, okay, you've made me the least of these. Now here I am. Are you willing to see me now? <sighs> Awkward silence. I love it. This is why pastors want to preach. Not for when the church is cheering, but for when that people are like, This is a woman that King Lemuel's mother says you have to search for. And when you, when you study this out, what she's saying is you might have to change your character if you're going to aspire to her. So just think about the things in our life that we want, but we don't want to change our character for. I want a new job that pays more money, but don't talk to me about my character with handling my finances. I want a spouse that loves the Lord, but don't talk to me about my character of not loving the Lord the way that I want my spouse to. I want my kids to serve God, but don't make me the kind of person that actually has to answer the tough questions that they'll ask if they do. When we're not willing to change our character for something, we don't treasure it. And many of us, in many areas... We want things that fit our already malformed character. And so a lot of times, we actually dehumanize someone so they fit into our dehumanized life. We want them to be less than so they can fit into this less than heart. And so we take people down so that we, we reduce them to the size that we can be bigger than them. The cross determines our becoming or our continuing. When I walk through that cross, I become. If I refuse to go near it, I continue. When I walk through the cross, is how I become something. When I refuse the cross, I continue in what I already am. And so the reality is we all will do this on both sides. We will all become because we will all take up our cross sometimes. And we will all continue because sometimes we, it's just a little bit too heavy today. And so there's areas in our life where we're constantly upset that we never change because we're continuing down this road. And it's because we don't want to get to the ultimate crossroads. Pun intended. We don't want to get to the crossroads. And then there's other times where we look back and say, I never would have handled this the way that I just did back then. It's because we've walked through that a little bit. The cross is how we become. 
ignoring the cross is why we continue. We are the bride of Christ. We're married to him. And we either stay in the covenant of marriage or we cheat on Jesus with Adam. A church inside the edges is a church that understands its marriage covenant with Jesus. And a church outside the edges is a church that's constantly grabbing at the lustful realities of culture and ourself and our dehumanization, and we're cheating on him with Adam. And here's the reality. We have so many weddings coming. We have three weddings coming up. We have two in October, one in November, one next June. And I'm going to be standing right here for all of them talking to people about vows. And when it comes to human-to-human vows, we know them, for better or for worse, sickness and in health, death do us part. We know them. Not everybody follows them, but we know them. But when it comes to our vows with Jesus, you ready? He's so forgiving. He's so full of grace that sometimes it's impossible to see if you ever stepped outside the boundary of it. And we get used to a God who is so loving that he lets me cross over the boundary and he's so amazing that he still makes me faithful even when I'm not. And so I forget that there's even boundaries with him. I forget that there's even a covenant with him because every time I fail it, he makes it impossible to fail it. Every time I run outside the edges, the book of Hebrews says he was crucified outside the the city gates. He was crucified outside the edges. I can't get away from him. David says it. Make my bed in heaven, you're there. Make my bed in hell, you're there. I can't get away from you, God. You're a stalker. Can't get away from him. So I don't know when I step out of bounds because he just extends the boundary line. But we have to think about it, though. How am I faithful to him? And how am I not faithful to him? Because the reality is this, when you get into a relationship, when you get into a relationship, you become like the person you're with, and you become like the reason why you're with them. Let that sit for a minute. I wish I had a donut. I'd eat it right now. When you enter into a relationship, you become like the person you're with, and you become like the reason you're with them. So think about how amazing that is when we're talking about Jesus. I become like the one I'm with, and I become like the reason why I need him, which means I become needy in all the good ways. I become humble in all the good ways. I become somebody who's dependent in all the good ways, because the only reason I would need Jesus is because I can't, and he can. He's deliverer before he's anything else. Sometimes we're with people that we dominate, and we become like the reason why we're with them. Sometimes we, become, we, we are with people, I'm not talking about even romantically, just friendships. Sometimes we have a laundry list of friends that we know we're better than. And we become like why we're with them. So why would Jesus be with us? Because he's the only person who can be with somebody less than and not become more like them, but pull them up. Pull them up into himself. And his reason for being with us is because he loves the Father and the Spirit. So he is love, and he pulls us up into that. So we have to be faithful to him. Just because he doesn't blow the whistle when we step out of bounds, just because grace overflows outside the boundaries, doesn't mean we become a church that sins that grace may abound. 
So James chapter 4, verse 4, here's what he says. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is saying, you're adulterous when you become friends with the world. But here's what James does. James names things in his book. He says to his church, here's exactly what you're doing. And please hear what I'm about to say, because all I want to do is talk about two of the things that James names. He names two issues, and he names a lot of issues, but two struck my interest. Two stuck out to me. Two made me want to talk about them. Two ways that we cheat on Jesus with Adam, but two ways that we could go from becoming folly to becoming the woman wisdom. James names the actual sins, but here's what I need to say. We will never agree if I name the actual words to you without talking about the symptoms. So if I say, because these are the two, if I say James names jealousy and he names selfish ambition. If I say to most people in this room, Consider if you're jealous or not. Here's what we do. We have a preconceived, reduced idea of what a word means, and so we say we're not based on our definition of the word. So if somebody says, I think you're jealous, we'll say, no, I'm not jealous. And you're only saying you're not jealous because of the definition you've given to the word jealousy. So based on my unbiased view of what jealousy means, I'm not jealous at all. Well, maybe you're selfishly ambitious. Based on my perfectly unbiased view of what selfish ambition is, I don't think I am. I think you are, based on my definition of it for you. How about we let the Bible talk about what these things mean? Let's look at the symptoms to see if we have the disease. We might say, no, I don't have the disease, but we have to look at the symptoms. And before we look at these two symptoms, there's something I want to say first. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom right now. That you would make you wish you had wisdom yesterday. That you may have wisdom in the future. What does this mean? We are so obsessed with right now as a culture. So obsessed with what's happening right now. That's one of the reasons why we want to name it and claim it, because we don't want to work for anything. We want it now. So, Lord, please give me something that my heart is not ready to have. So it can destroy my life, but at least I could taste it for a minute. No. When the preacher preaches, and for 20 years I sat right there, you're not just saying, this isn't for me because I'm not going through it now. You're saying, this is for everybody because I don't know when that storm is going to come in my life. I don't know when that hurricane is going to show up. I don't know when that tornado is going to come. I don't know when the typhoon of jealousy is going to hit my heart. It might not be right now, but listen and gain instruction so that you may have wisdom in the future. Just because it's not you today. We don't come to church for today. We come to church for eternity. We come to church because our God is Alpha and Omega. He can change something in my past, and it changes my character now because he's cool like that. He can do that. So when we hear these messages, if this isn't for you, understand, James listed a lot of things, and I felt led to talk about these two. So let's just assume either for now or for another time, this is for our church. Now or the future. 
So we have to talk about the folly becoming wisdom. How does folly become wisdom? How do we get out of our relationship with Adam and be faithful to Christ? How does folly become wisdom? James 3.16 lists two. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Jealousy has to become self-forgetfulness. The opposite of jealousy is self-forgetfulness, which immediately means jealousy is thinking about myself too much. So now, who's not jealous? Good. Jealousy. Let's read a text that describes jealousy. Proverbs 6, 34 and 35. Sorry if this one sounds a bit like a Bible study. It's just heavy on me to talk about this. So Proverbs 6, 34 and 35. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Let's talk about that for a second. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. So look at the qualities of jealousy. Jealousy gets angry and feels the need to take revenge. Do we agree? But you only feel the need to take revenge when you feel something has been taken from you. Do we agree? If you've done something to me and you've taken something, I'm going to take back revenge. So is it saying to us that the jealous person is not the person who wishes they had what somebody else has, but the kind of person who when somebody they don't like gets something good, you feel something's been taken from you? And a hush falls over the crowd. Whenever something good happens for somebody else, if I feel like that good in them has taken something from me, and what are some random examples of this? Hey, did you know that Don got a promotion? Yeah, I know Don got a promotion, but that's because I think him and his boss Susan are having a little thing. Because I know Don, and I know the way he works, and he should not have gotten that promotion. If anybody's name is Don and your boss is Susan, I swear to God, I just made that up. Just trying to think of names. That person who says that about Don is the kind of person who's saying, I feel like something's been taken from me, so I'm going to take something from Don. Hey, did you, you know, so-and-so's getting married. Yeah, I know so-and-so's getting married, but wait, they're going to mess that one up. That marriage is going to end in three years. You're not jealous because you want that guy. You're not even jealous because you want that marriage. You're jealous because... Somebody got something good and it feels like something's been taken from you. That's why it says the jealous person gets angry and they take revenge. And look what it says next. This is unbelievable. It says in verse 35, he will accept no compensation and he will refuse though you multiply gifts. Look at this. The jealous person can't receive gifts because they have to take. They can't receive. They're takers. Don't give me a gift. There's people that I know deal with jealousy. And when you try and act nice to them, they'll say something like, oh, you're just manipulating me with niceness. Because you can't receive a gift. You have to take. You can't receive something generous. Because jealous people are takers. They have to know. And it could just be a little bit, it could just be a comment. Like, oh, things are going on in my life. There's Madeline and Anthony. Oh, you guys spent, you know, time in England. That's really good for you guys. Good handling your money early on in your marriage by going to England. You just make a little comment, but here's what happened. All I did, I didn't take a lot. They could let that one bounce off them, but all I did was I just took, I just took a little bit of patience. They had to work to be patient, even if it was just for a second. I made them have to think. I took that. And if that makes you feel better, 
you deal with jealousy. Not because you want to go to England, which I do. Not because I want to have a healthy mustache like Anthony has, which I don't. I've been busting your chops for so long about it. It's done. It's over. I love you. That's what jealousy is. Maybe I'm jealous, actually, because I've been taking digs this entire time, come to think of it. Between there and the walk up here, I think the Lord just stopped me. Like, for me, it felt like three hours. For you guys, I just walked up there, and I was like, be in the throne room just now. And he's like, God had a mustache? I get it. I get it. Well done. You haven't even defended yourself. I am a terrible person. Amazing. What is self-forgetfulness? The opposite of jealousy. The reason why I feel like everything good that happens with you is you taking something from me is because I'm obsessed with myself, number one. I can't stop thinking about what I have and what I don't have. So when somebody else doesn't have something, I feel happy. And when somebody else does have something, I feel frustrated because I'm obsessed with myself. The opposite of jealousy is self-forgetfulness. Look what it says about the Proverbs 31 church. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. Can you imagine considering something before you buy it? (laughs) With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself, listen to this, with strength and makes her arms strong, which could sound vain, but here's why. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow. Because she's forward thinking, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She doesn't just think ahead for other people. She thinks ahead in excellence for other people. She's not afraid of snow. She's thinking about the season to come because her whole house has scarlet. I don't just cover you. I cover you well. She doesn't think about herself. She forgets herself long enough to help somebody else. She doesn't remember herself. Self-forgetful people sometimes need to be nudged. Hey, you have to take some time for yourself. You are balling out for everybody else. You need to take time for yourself. That's what a self-forgetful person needs to hear. Self-remembering people never need to be told to take a break. I'm hearing all the laughter, and I can't help but realize no men are laughing. (laughs) Do you hear that? I love it. I'm just having so much fun right now. I hope you guys are having fun too. I'm having so much fun. We have to see Christ's, we have to see in Christ's poverty, riches, to be self-forgetful. What is the poverty of God? The cross. The cross is the poverty of God because the cross is God emptying out everything he has. The cross is God's poverty. It's his poverty. It's the cross is heaven having nothing left. But in that is the wealth of heaven. Because in that poverty, many were made rich. That's how you forget yourself. You realize that wealth is defined by what I can give to my neighbor, not by what I hoard and keep for myself. Even if it's just, even if I can't keep finances to myself, I keep emotional control for myself, I keep behavioral control for myself. So jealousy has to become self-forgetfulness. And then the, uh, the last one, we are going to, I'm preaching over, I don't care. We, this is going to be interesting on all kinds of levels. Selfish ambition has to become vulnerable love. James 4, verses 1 through, we'll do 1 through 3. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not re- you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And that's when he says, you adulterous people, that we already read that text. Selfish ambition has to become vulnerable love. Selfish ambition is really our over-pursuit of things. So it is good to pursue good desires. But it becomes a train wreck when you over-pursue good desires. So how do you know when you're over-pursuing a desire? Simply put, and we're going to take a journey together right now. Over-pursuing a desire is anytime you turn a desire into a, a need. When a I wish turns into an I must. So let's just talk about three. When enjoyment of my job is seen as a need and not a desire, I'm over-pursuing. And I'm going to even redact my note and go even farther. When my enjoyment of anything is seen as a need and not a desire, when I feel like I need to serve, in order to survive, I have to enjoy every person, every place, and everything in my life all of the time. When that is seen as a need and not a desire, we live with only two possibilities, bad or perfect. When enjoyment is seen as a need and it's pursued like a need, I only have two categories of how my day is going, horrible or perfect. Have you talked to people like this? Jets fans are like this. (laughs) What's the quarterback's name again? Darnold? Darnell? Darnold? He has one good game, and a Jets fan said to me, Larry, he's the, he's the next Derek Jeter. Now, let me just point something out, because I don't even like the Yankees, but let me point something out, Jets fans. When your team is so bad that you need to compare one good player to a baseball player, like you don't have any other players to compare them to, the guy has two bad games, and they want to can him. Bad or perfect all the time. You can't live like that. I've stopped trying to enjoy the Giants a long time ago. (laughs) I don't care anymore at all. I'm just happy I eat food while I watch football. Like, I'm good. (laughs) Set the bar low, you're going to live pretty happy. That Just don't remember I said that. That's overruled or sustained, whatever. (laughs) Sustained, right? Objection. Don't Jury, don't hear that part. We, we know people who, they're, they're slaves to the last thing that happened. Something good happened. How are you doing? Oh, my God. I've never been better. Well, that's terrifying. That is terrifying that you've never been better, which means, like, right now is the greatest you've ever been, ever. And then we all know the person, how are you doing right now? Oh, my God. It's the worst. It's terrible. And, like, You're looking at what they're driving. You're looking at where they live. You're looking at the fact that they have enough health to tell you that things aren't going well. And you want to punch them in the throat. I can make them worse for you right now. Trust me, it's not going as bad as you think. I hold in my hand and in my attitude the ability to prove to you that your day is not the worst. It can get worse. Here's one. I'm acting like I'm just making, they're on my notes. The need, oh God, the need to be understood or heard. It's not a need. 
You want me to preach this whole message twice, I feel like? Whenever I say something and I need to be heard or understood, I might be struggling with this one right now as we speak. Who knows? Being heard and being understood is a desire because it is not in my control whether or not you understand or hear me. My need is to speak the truth the best I can. Your need is to try and understand and hear when somebody else speaks and vice versa. But your understanding and willingness to hear what I'm saying is not my need. It's yours. The minute I think being understood and heard is a need, which means I need it to survive, then I will do one of two things to make sure. I will either intimidate you until you give me the sense that you understand or agree, or I will withdraw from you when you disappoint me long enough because you never do. My job, your job in your home, your job with your kids, your job with your spouse, your job with your future spouse... (laughs) John isn't even looking up, like, I don't know, I'm taking, taking notes on Instagram here. <laughs> Our job is to say the truth the most clear and relatable way we can. And then we have to flow with other people. We can't assume that I said it well enough for you to understand it in the first place. And I can't assume that what I said is worthy of being heard in the first place. Why are we so confident when we speak that what we said was clear enough to be understood and good enough to be heard? We just assume nothing but gold comes out of our mouth. Like right now, I'm looking at what I've been saying. It's like a 6 on a scale from 1 to 10, maybe a 5. I feel like it's an 11 on a scale from, on a scale from 1 to 3. And then sex. Sex is not a need. Otherwise, Jesus would have had it. Otherwise, people who don't would be dead. (laughs) Prove me wrong. Food is a need. (laughs) Air is a need. Some of you want to remove air from me right now, and it will be proof that it's a need because I will die. Sex is a desire. Otherwise, for everyone who's widowed or single, God is not meeting their needs. When sex is seen as a need, first off, it gets pursued outside the covenant of marriage. Notice God didn't have to put us in a covenant to have water because water should be pursued all the time. But sex being a desire means it doesn't have to be pursued all the time. (laughs) When sex is seen as a need, it's pursued in pornography. No one say anything. This is always the most awkward moment whenever you bring up pornography. Whenever you keep saying pornography and, like, the preacher keeps saying pornography and then everyone is looking straight at you because you're saying pornography because nobody wants to even look around but somebody wants to amen a little bit. (laughs) When sex is seen as a need, it's pursued in marriage as reward or entitlement. I treated you well today, so we should have it. 
oh, that's why you treated me well today. That's lusting after your spouse. You want me to keep going? All right. <laughs> if sex is a need, have we ever heard the theory that you don't fault the thief who's stealing because their family's legitimately starving? I've spent two years with a baby girl. If she was starving, I would get food. Period. Period. And most people wouldn't fault you for it. Because when, when you don't have a need you should have, people bend the law so that you can get that need. Because as humans, we understand everybody needs food. If sex were a need, you could justify rape. Because they're just trying to survive. And it is not true. It's a desire, otherwise Jesus would have had it. With that said, humans do not need sex, but marriages do. <laughs> Husband up there said amen. Wife right here said amen. Listen, just make it out to cash, right? And we're good. Let's keep it simple. Let's not involve the IRS. You know what I mean? Yo, I said that into a podcast just now. Ian, <laughs> do your thing. Marriages have to have sex in them to be marriages. But let me say this. Oh, my God. Let me say this, okay? <laughs> you have to understand where you and your spouse are in life to have the proper expectation of what that's supposed to look like. So when you're young and spry, like my wife and I, I didn't mean that to rhyme, you know, maybe you got to stretch first. You know you met that person. Like, what happened to your arm? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Why are you limping? No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. But as things change, we have to set proper expectations. Sometimes you change in life and you have to take beauty of a youthful kind and exchange it for beauty of a more heavenly kind. The nature of it, the communication of it, as we change, as we go through seasons, as we go through age, it has to change. So I'm not making a blanket statement. Like, I feel like in, like, nine and a half months, I'm going to have, like, 80 baby dedications to do because of today. We have to be realistic with it. But humans don't need sex. Our marriages do. And I think it's important to make that distinction. But when sex is seen on, from a human level as a need, bad things happen. Those are over-pursuits. So where do we close? Because I'm going to close now. We close with vulnerable love. Read Proverbs 31, 31. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. All of a sudden, the proverb goes from telling you what this woman is like to a command to the person listening. Give her of the fruit of her hands, which means it's possible that this woman does all the things that she just did, but it doesn't reside on her whether or not she gets to eat the fruit of her hands or get praise for it. It's up to the person she's doing it for. So this love, this woman becomes vulnerable because she doesn't control the outcome of her labor. It's up to somebody else. Her love is vulnerable love. It can be said no to. Listen to me. We need to have a love that is willing to hear a no just so there's the chance for a yes. If our love is based on a positive response, it's not love, it's lust. If our work in the home for our children is based on getting appreciated, it's not love, it's lust. If our labor for our friends is based on being the best friend, it's not love, it's lust. 
our labor, our work, our service should be in response to a Savior that relentlessly keeps doing that for us. And we just, all we want to do is create the possibility in someone else that our work for them can make praise happen in their heart. That's all we're trying to do is make praise happen. It's not, I'm, I don't serve you so that you can even recognize me. I serve you for the chance that praise to God can happen in you. I'm preaching right now not to be told, hey, you did a good job, but so that praise might happen in your heart. We serve our spouse, we serve our kids, we serve our friends, we serve our church, not so that we can get recognized, but so that there's the chance that praise can happen in that person. So why don't we stand to our feet this morning? I so don't apologize for going too long. How do we, how do we become? How do we forget ourselves? It seems impossible. Here's how we forget ourselves. We come to this table and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. I can't remember him and remember myself at the same time. So I have to come to this table to learn how to forget myself. I come to this table to learn how to love without expecting anything in return. Because that's what this table did. I come to this table to learn how to serve and have there be the chance that there's no recognition and I'm okay with it. I come to this table to give up every desire I have to change somebody else. I come to this table to let go of every bit of enjoyment that I think is a need and I just need to learn to enjoy Christ. I come to this table for any manipulative thing in me that is trying to create circumstances in my life that would make me not have to change. I come to the night when he was betrayed and he said, in response to your betrayal, I'm going to give myself to you. That's what we're coming to. So as you come to this table, I want you in to use your best imagination. I want you to think about that woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And instead of being one of the Pharisees or instead of being Jesus, you picture yourself as that woman. And you're being grabbed from your seat. And you're being thrown down in front of this table. And your past and religion and all this kind of stuff is saying, look at her. Look at him. A mess. And this table reaches down and says, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood shed for you. This is my life spent for your life. I'm buying your life at this table. I'm buying every good and every bad decision you've ever made at this table. And when we stand up from this table, when that food goes down and that drink goes down and we turn to leave the table, we can hear Jesus say, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. And we leave here with that love. That makes us the Proverbs 31 woman. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and the blood of Jesus. And from these gifts, may we feel the love that knows no bounds, that knows no edges, that goes to the farthest reaches to bring us back. May we be embraced by that love, changed by that love, and been made new by that love right now in this moment. Teach us to love our neighbor as ourself and teach us to love ourselves the way that you love us. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.